please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 26 to 38. This is God's Word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. This is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let us pray. Lord, we ask that you would teach us from this, your word, from this passage. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law. Apply it to us, Lord, so that we do not grow just merely more knowledgeable about this passage, but that you would change us that you would make us more willing to submit to you, that you would help us to know better the Savior that you sent this day so long ago. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our passage this morning takes us from the center of Jerusalem, the temple, to a no-account town in lowly Galilee, also sometimes called Galilee of the Gentiles, but it also takes us to the very fullness of time. For our passage brings us to the very threshold of the most significant moment in the history of creation to this point, the incarnation of the Son of God. But it begins almost unnoticed like a mustard seed, like the smallest bit of leaven, which will in time go through the whole loaf. For what happens in this passage is the beginning 
of the good news that will echo into eternity and will fill the entire universe with hope. It begins, it says, in the sixth month. Not the sixth month of the year, but as we see down in verse 36, the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Elizabeth, you remember, old Elizabeth, uh, wife of Zechariah. In our last passage, Zechariah was told that she would bear a son in her old age who would become John the Baptist. And Gabriel had appeared to Zechariah and gave this promise about who John was, what he would do, how he would prepare the way of the Lord. Here in our passage, God has sent Gabriel back to earth, back to, to, back to Israel, this time not to Jerusalem, but to Nazareth. He has been sent to deliver a message of good news. Gabriel was the one who had gone to Zechariah six months earlier. He was the one that God sent to Daniel the prophet more than 500 years earlier as well to comfort Daniel with promises about these days. But today, the angel has not been sent to an old prophet in faraway Susa or to an old priest in Jerusalem. Today, the angel has been sent to a young girl in Nazareth. Now, the very first thing we are told about this girl is that she is a virgin. And that fact is emphasized again in our passage later on to point out to us that her child will not be the product of human progress or human effort. Her child will be an act of God. It is a reminder to us, a humbling reminder, that we could never have saved ourselves. God had to come in. God had to come down from heaven. It was a divine rescue. Our hope is not in artificial intelligence, in human scientific progress, in greater medicine. Our hope is, is not in, in any of these things or our own efforts. We could never have produced a Savior on our own. Give us a million years, we would never do it. God had to come down. His own right arm brought salvation when he saw there was no man who could bring it. That is part of what we learn from the virgin birth, that our rescue, our salvation is a divine act of grace. We are also told that though she is a virgin, she is betrothed. She was engaged. You see, in Jewish culture, marriage came in two stages. First, either in person or through writing, uh, the mar uh, marriage would be promised and a girl would be betrothed to her husband. Sometimes this would last for up to a year before the two actually came together in marriage. And this was generally a, a meeting between the fathers. And this marriage, this, this betrothal was more binding than our engagement is, so that it could only be broken by divorce uh, because of adultery. That was what the law said, but they were not yet living together. It was so, so binding, in fact, that the, the, the fiancé was often called the husband. 
already before the marriage actually took place. Now, a, a Jewish girl in those days could be legally betrothed as early as 12 years old. The, gener- the usual age was between 13 and 15. So Mary was probably very young. It's hard to imagine we really can't put ourselves in Mary's shoes as this young girl confronted by an angel who speaks to her in the, with such a greeting and then to know the weight, the pressure that will come upon her, her being pregnant before she's married, the ridicule that it would bring for the rest of her life. And the way she submits to this is a model for us of submission to God's will. R.C. Sproul said that the beginning of Jesus' life is marked by a young mother submitting to God's will. And the end of Jesus' life is marked by the words, not my will, but yours be done. Mary is a model of faith and a model of submission to us. Young though she may be, we all have a lot that we could learn from her. She is given to us as a good example. Now Mary is engaged to a man named Joseph who is from the tribe of David. Mary is also from the tribe of David. We see other places in the, from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David. We see elsewhere in Scripture, it says that Jesus descended from David according to the flesh. So as John the Baptist's family is from the tribe of Levi, from that priestly tribe, Jesus is from the royal tribe of Judah. These are the two most important tribes in Israel's history, Levi and Judah. All the priests came from Levi. Almost all the kings came from Judah, at least from the nation of Judah. Outside of Saul, who was from Benjamin, all the ones in that promised line of David, they are of the tribe of Judah. Jesus comes from this tribe. But the tribe tribe of Judah had seen hard times over the last few hundreds of years. The prophets stopped 400 years earlier. The royal line stopped hundreds of years before that. The line was still there, but it had been cut down. It had been reduced to a stump. And so the main thing that was still going on in Israel at this time was the priestly work in the temple, which would end in 70 AD. But the royal line of David, it wasn't wasn't as important in the world as it used to be. Here we find Mary, not in Jerusalem, not in Bethlehem, but in Nazareth, Galilee of the Gentiles. The, The king of Israel is not from the tribe of David, from the tribe of Judah. He is the wicked Idumean, Herod, who is called king of Judea. And Caesar Augustus from, in Rome reigns over him. So the royal line has been reduced. It has been cut down, and, and Mary is a poor girl. We'll see elsewhere proof that Mary and Joseph were both considered poor, even in Nazareth. And you might remember Nathaniel, how he asked of Philip, in John 
uh, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was not a, a place of great repute. It was a place just in the middle of nowhere. Kent Hughes said, Mary was just a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. And so you can imagine Mary's surprise when this angel comes to her with these words, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Perhaps you've heard this in another translation, hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. It is a prayer that is sadly repeated ten times as much in the rosary as the Lord's Prayer in Catholic churches. Mary would be horrified to know that the angel's greeting had been turned into a prayer to Mary. What this passage is, has been sometimes uh, explained to mean in the Catholic churches is that Mary herself has grace to give, that she's full of grace. But that's not what it's saying. Mary has been shown great favor. Mary has been given much grace. Jesus Christ is the source of all our grace. We have no other Savior, no other co-Savior with him. Jesus is Mary's Savior too. And she, in her lowly state, has been shown much grace. She is a wonderful woman. She is not our Savior. And Gabriel says, the Lord is with you. That is not a prayer. That is a fact, a blessed fact. The Lord was with Mary in a special way, watching over her. She would be the mother of Jesus. Dear brothers and sisters, this gives us a glimpse of how God's ways are higher than our ways, that God regards the lowly people that we would quickly pass over as unimportant, are important to God. Earlier, it had spoken about how John would be great. You remember what John would be like, how he would be out in the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere, with no status, no power, no position. And yet God calls him great. Badly dressed, lowly, he would be great before the Lord. So too, young Mary, though she was poor and lowly from a town of no reputation, she is highly favored with God, and she has been blessed with the Lord's presence. God, you see, is not impressed with outward things, with high positions, with human achievements. God looks on the heart. He regards the lowly. Isaiah 66 says this, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house you would build for me? But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite of spirit and trembles at my word. Phil Riken says that we, we are backwards in the way we approach this. We usually try to exalt ourselves and God has to humble us. Jesus did the opposite. He humbled himself, and God exalted him. He said this, the Lord Jesus, in Luke 9, He who is least among you is the one who is great. Jesus would show us true greatness 
this way. God looks on us. He looks at the world with a different view. It is the correct view. We are distracted with so many other things that don't really matter. God looks on the heart. Mary was, in God's eyes, truly great, though this girl had accomplished nothing yet to speak of. She was a sinner, of course, but you'll notice here the way she submits to God's will, the way she believes God's word. When the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah, he said, well, how will I know this? He was asking for a sign. Mary asked something similar, but there is a difference. She says, how can this be? She wants more information. She believes, but she doesn't understand. She doesn't demand a sign, and she gets no rebuke. And this shows her great faith. And yet, also with all this, she will be enduring a life of suffering because God has called her to this special thing. Her own marriage will be put at risk. Perhaps her life. It would be hard for her to explain to Joseph, I'm pregnant, but there was no man involved. It was God. And so she, she doesn't, it seems like she doesn't even tell Joseph. She goes off later to visit Elizabeth and stays there until the third month until it's discovered that Mary is pregnant. And then God appears to Joseph, or an angel appears to Joseph. And Mary doesn't try to fix this problem that she's in. She just leaves it in God's hands. He will take care of her. He's the one who has called her to this position. The same for us, brothers and sisters. When God calls you, it is to a life of service, a life of suffering. There will be trouble involved. We are to leave that into God, in God's hands. Rest in Him and trust Him that He who called us will be faithful to the end. But this passage is not primarily about Mary or Gabriel. It is about the Lord Jesus. And this passage is very full of instruction and revelation to us about our Savior. Now there is much in this passage that is parallel to the passage last week that we saw about John the Baptist. But more striking is the contrast that shows us that Jesus is greater. There is a greater miracle. Elizabeth was an old woman. She was barren. But there were other old mothers in Scripture who were barren, and God gave them children like Sarah. John's birth was miraculous, but Jesus' birth is completely unique. She, he was born of a virgin. Also, there is a greater person that is promised. John would be called, later on in our chapter, verse 76, he would be called a prophet of the Most High. Jesus here is called the Son of the Most High. John would be filled with the Holy Spirit while he was still in his mother's womb. Jesus would be conceived by the Holy Spirit. And there was also a greater work that is promised. John would prepare the way for the king. Jesus is the king. 
John's whole significance is his relationship to Jesus. Jesus gains nothing from John. John is important only because he prepares the way for the Lord. John is called, he will, it says, he will be great before the Lord. Jesus is great without qualification. And this is usually used of God in Scripture. Jesus is greater, greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon, greater than Moses, David's greater son. He is called a great high priest, the great shepherd of the sheep. He brings in a great salvation. It reminds us of Micah 5.4. It says, He shall be great to the ends of the earth. Now what does this passage teach us about our great Savior? Three things that I primarily wanted to point out. One, Jesus is truly man. Two, Jesus is truly God. And three, Jesus is holy. All of these things are absolutely necessary for your salvation. If any of them is lost, you are lost. But all three of these things are affirmed of Jesus in this passage so that God has given you a Savior perfectly suited for your needs a complete Savior, that you would need no other. First, Jesus is truly man. Jesus is the long-expected seed of the woman promised to Adam and Eve so long ago. He is also the promised descendant of David, which is pointed out here in verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. He is the promised seed of David. And he is truly the son of Mary. Jesus is a real man. He is still a man. He is truly human. And sometimes we lose sight of this. We, we conceive of Jesus as, as Superman. Superman who pretended to be human but he's an alien. You know, Jesus is really human. He took on our flesh. He has a human body, a human genealogy, a human family, a human soul, a human will. He was made just like us in every respect except without sin so that we might have a high priest who knows us, who can sympathize with our weaknesses. There was a heresy in the early church called docetism, which claimed that Jesus only seemed to be human. He walked around with the appearance of a human, but if he only seemed to be human, then he couldn't actually suffer and die on the cross. There would be no payment. He would just be pretending the whole time, and thus our salvation would be lost. And this this heresy was refuted. It's disproved by our very passage. Jesus is truly human, born of the Virgin Mary. It's part of our creed. It is basic to our faith. If Jesus is not human, we are lost. And Jesus, we see, is not just any human. He is the King. He is the Son of David, the heir, the fulfiller 
of all those promises made to David. I wonder if Mary would have heard the echo of the promise of Isaiah 9 in Gabriel's words. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom forevermore. That is the promise that is fulfilled in Christ. He would reign on his father David's throne. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now God has promised had promised there would be no end to David's throne, not because there is an endless succession of kings, but that one king would reign forever. And that king is the Lord Jesus. He would reign forever. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now this passage is not just something you see that happened 2,000 years ago in Nazareth. What is the implication here? It is that Jesus reigns today. He reigns forever. He will reign tomorrow. Think about that as elections are coming up. If it's true, which of course it is, Jesus reigns right now. That is where our hope is, not in who the next guy is or girl is that's elected. You all, most of you all are old enough to know you put your hope in a politician, you're going to be disappointed. That's not where our hope is. So we don't get too excited when somebody gets elected. We don't get too disappointed when the other person is elected. Because Jesus is the one who reigns. He's not up for re-election. He reigns forever. And that should give us great comfort as well in all our struggles. He reigns not over just the whole universe, but over your individual life, over all your troubles, all your struggles, all your sin, all your hopes and failures. Jesus reigns. Brothers and sisters, we can't hear that often enough. Jesus reigns. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. Secondly, we see Jesus is truly God. He is called the Son of the Most High in verse 32. He is called the Son of God in verse 35. There is there was another early church heresy called adoptionism, which, which claimed that Jesus was a regular man, and at some point during his life, perhaps at his baptism, God adopted him, and he became God's son. But he wasn't originally God's son. Here we are taught the truth, that there was never a time when the man Jesus was not God. From conception, he is God. A human nature and a divine nature in one person forever. There was never a time when Jesus was simply a man. He was always the God-man. Not 50% man, 50% God, truly man truly God. And now, this is mysterious. Every conception is veiled in mystery. We can't really explain 
any of it. Uh, we, we see this in Psalm 139, which we read earlier. But this, this conception is the greatest of all mysteries. It is the great miracle of our passage. Now, for whatever reason, in the last 150, 200 years, miracles have been under attack, under criticism in the Bible. And particularly, for whatever reason, I don't understand why, the virgin birth. We can't explain that with science. Well, we can't explain any miracle with science. It's a miracle. We can't explain how Jesus turns water to wine. But for whatever reason, this miracle, the virgin birth, has been under attack and has been maybe the most controversial miracle in Scripture. Maybe for this reason, we have become too focused on it. It is true. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. He had no human father. That is an amazing miracle. It is not the most amazing miracle in this passage. After all, Jesus is not the first person to come to the world in a miraculous way. So did Eve. Eve had no mother or father, and yet she was brought into existence. Adam didn't have any mother or father. He was made from dirt. I don't know why that's, that's not more attacked. It's true, too. But what, what sets apart this miracle more than the others is not that Jesus was born without a father. It is that that child that was born is God. And that's what makes this more impressive than any other miracle we had seen. It's not the virgin birth, it's the incarnation. Jesus Christ is God. God became created. He became man. The boundless God took on limitations. He took on flesh. He became small. The creator became part of his creation. Without losing any of his godness, Jesus Christ, when he became man, the Son of God did not become small. He, he, he added rather than lost anything. He added a human nature to himself without losing any of his omnipotence and his, his uh, being everywhere, his omnipresence. He be, still retains all of his attributes as God, but in a very mysterious way, he is also a man. We cannot explain this, but this, this is where the ho our hope lies. You know, the early church fathers spent a long time talking about the incarnation, almost exalting it over Christ's death and resurrection. That's a mistake, I think. We preach Christ and him crucified. We can see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John that they spend way more time teaching us about Christ's death and resurrection than about the incarnation. Yet, the incarnation is incredibly important. It is the hope of the universe. This is what, why they focused on it so much. Imagine it this way. God is boundless. But imagine, this is God. And this is the universe. 
He is so much bigger than our universe, as big as our universe is, tiny in comparison. He is infinite. For him to come into our world, to come into our universe, means that everything will be changed. It means that nothing will be unaffected by it. It's not just some story that happens in Nazareth. It is the beginning of the, of the redemption of the universe. You know, I was trying to think of a good analogy for this. It's not a great analogy, but imagine that you're a child. You're playing basketball. You're on a basketball team, and you're not doing well. And there you turn, and Michael Jordan's there, and he's putting on your uniform. And you know he's joining your team, and you know you're going to win now because Michael Jordan's joining your team. It's something like this. When God becomes man, he doesn't become a man to destroy men. He becomes a man to save men. And when you see God suiting up, as it were, God taking on our flesh, becoming a man, you know this is D-Day. The victory is inevitable from this point. Salvation is inevitable. You know, Christ, if you are a Christian, Christ lives in you. Sin also lives in you. And this creates this irreconcilable conflict. One of these will be destroyed, and it will not be Jesus. Jesus succeeds at everything he tries to do. And sin, one day, will be completely eliminated from your life. But not just your life. Romans 8 tells us how the whole creation groans in expectation of the revealing of the sons of God. The whole creation will be changed. There will be a new heavens and a new earth because of what Christ does. And so when Jesus Christ comes into the world, it is inevitable that sin will be removed from the whole universe. We're still in the process of his kingdom coming and growing. But this is, this is why the early church fathers focused on this. It is because when God acts, when God enters into our world, when he becomes part of it, that is victory on the way. That is where our great hope is in this life. God has made his dwelling with us, and he will bring the victory. This, this is D-Day. When we remember in Matthew, it says that Jesus would be called Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. And we focus rightly on that he will save. Sometimes we remember that he saves us from our sins. But we also ought to remember this other great part of that. His people. That he becomes part of us. We, he is not ashamed to call us brethren. Now this is a wonderful privilege that Mary becomes the mother of God. But don't be jealous of Mary. For God has given all of us the ability to have a special relationship with him. To all who believe on him, to them he gives the right to be called the children of God. Even later on in Luke, Mary and his brothers would be waiting for him outside, and he would say, my mother and brothers, 
are those who hear the word of God and do it. We, because of Jesus coming down and becoming a man, we can be related to him in this special way, adopted into his family. Hebrews tell us, tells us he is not ashamed to call us his brethren. Isn't that an amazing comfort, brothers and sisters? Jesus Christ has come down. God has become man. He has identified himself with you. He has brought you into his family. That is our hope. That is great favor, not just for Mary. I could say it of you, greetings, favored ones. The Lord is with you. It's true. The Lord is with you, brothers and sisters. You are greatly favored, full of grace that God has given. He has given us all the right to be called the children of God. Finally, we see that Jesus is holy. This is the last great emphasis that Gabriel sets before us as we consider Jesus' conception. He would be conceived by the Holy Spirit, therefore the child will be called holy. Sometimes, I'm not exactly sure why, we imagine that sin is transferred by fathers all the way down, but not mothers, and that's why Jesus has no sin. Perhaps, but the Bible never says that. What the Bible does show in this verse is that Jesus is called holy because he is conceived by the Holy Spirit. So it's not necessarily the absence of something that causes him to be holy, but the presence of someone, the Holy Spirit, whose great work is to sanctify. By the virtue of the Holy Spirit, he preserves Jesus so that Mary's sin doesn't affect Jesus. He is born without sin, and therefore he is called holy, the Son of God. He has been born human, born into our world, into our sinful line, but because of this, without sin. And that is absolutely necessary for us, too. Because if Jesus had any sin at all, if he had Adam's original sin uh, on, on his account, he would never have been able to save us. We would have never been able to have a Savior. We would be utterly lost. We needed a Savior who was, who was God, who was man, who was sinless. You might say, that's impossible. We could never have such a thing. God is not a man. And there is no one who was without sin. But Gabriel has brought good news. Nothing will be impossible with God. Jesus Christ is truly God, truly man, truly holy, perfectly suited to be a complete Savior, just the Savior you need. There is no one else. So brothers and sisters, let us rejoice with Mary, with Elizabeth. A Savior has come who will save his people from their sins. He is the son of David. He reigns forever. He is still on the throne and he has brought a great salvation for you, his people, for all who trust in him. So let us drink deeply from this fountain.
and turn to no other. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts that in our low estate you had regard for us, that you came down, that you are with us, that you are not ashamed to call us your brethren. We thank you for Jesus Christ, for his saving work. We thank you that we might know you through him. Give us joy in his presence and help us to gladly go to you each day through him, for you have brought us near by sending your son to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.